Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The sermon text, as Pastor Bob mentioned for you earlier, uh, was, is our gospel lesson, Luke chapter 10. I'd like to pray by using the last verse of the hymn we just sang. Let's pray. Lord of the harvest, great and kind, rouse to action heart and mind. Let the gathering nations all see your light and heed your call. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the rich history of hymnody that our church body has, especially that it includes songs like the one we just sang. If you were to pull out the hymnal in front of you you'd, and look at the bottom of the page for hymn number 830, you'd see that the words that we just sang were first penned by this good-looking chap right here named Jonathan Frederick Bonmeyer, who lived from 1774 to 1841. This hymn was originally written in German, but translated for us to sing in English. It may have sounded a bit different, too, when it was first written, since the tune that we know uh, comes to us when it was added to our uh, TLH, the Lutheran Hymnal, in 1941. But this hymn, as it was originally written, lands historically in, a, in an interesting time period. As I said earlier, Jonathan Frederick Bonmeyer lived until 1841, and the first German Lutherans who came over to America, who would go on to found the Missouri Synod, that's us, started coming over to America in the 1830s and the 1840s. And so, in other words, it's, it's possible that this hymn that we sang just now would have been a rather new song for them. It would have been like they were singing the modern popular music of the day, much like we hear on the radio in our time. And what's great about this hymn is how it was inspired by Scripture. We especially see that in the stanzas 5 and 6. Here we see a direct connection to what it says in Luke 10, verse 2. And Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Stanza 6, which we used as the prayer at the beginning of the sermon, is a specific request that we make to God. It's, it's a petition to God in prayer. But let's be honest. That can be a hard prayer to pray, especially if you're the one that the Lord is sending out into the harvest field. Now, in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, we see the story of Jesus sending out the 72, and it starts with the words, After this. And it's always good to know the context, where it fits into Scripture, to understand what's going on here. Okay? So while the, the this being referenced here is, in verse 1, is, is Jesus being rejected by a Samaritan village, and it is Jesus talking about the cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 9, just, just prior to this. And the cost of discipleship is, is one that the founders of the LCMS knew full well. You see, these, these first Germans who came to America in the 1830s, they were escaping religious persecution. The Prussian government had state churches in those days, and they were trying to consolidate. They were trying to simplify all the different church bodies that existed. And so they had the Catholics over here, and then they, they were forcing the Lutherans and the Calvinists to worship together. 
And to know what that might feel like, imagine our federal government saying that the only way we could continue to be a church is if we combined with the Baptist street, uh, Church down the street, the UCC, Owen Eaglebrook. That didn't fly with them. Because doctrine matters. Because what the church teaches matters. And so in hopes of staying faithful to what Scripture says, they got into boats and they traveled across the Atlantic Ocean and up the Mississippi and they settled into St. Louis, Missouri. A little later they went down to Perry County. And one could say, these first American Lutherans knew a thing or two of the cost of discipleship uprooting their families and having to strike out on their own. One could also say they were very much like the 72 that Jesus sent out in, this, in our scripture reading for today. And in this reading, we see Jesus sending the 72 out with a very specific task, to preach and to proclaim the presence of the kingdom, to heal and to perform miracles and to say peace to houses where they were accepted with hospitality. Notice, too, Jesus also prepares them to face rejection. Jesus says in Luke 10, 16, The one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, it's tempting to relegate the sending of the 72 to the, to the abstracts of history. And Jesus sent them out some, what, 2,000 years ago. Who cares, right? And sure, we see it again with the 1830s when the Lutherans were facing problems with the state of Prussia, but who cares, right? But does Jesus send out others today to take on the task of proclaiming God's kingdom? Yeah, he does. But not exactly how you might think. I mean, sure, we, we think of people being sent out like missionaries or, or our friends at church, specifically when they go on a trip on behalf of the church. Trips like our, our youth are taking, heading to the National Youth Gathering this coming week. Or the LWL convention that was in, down in Mobile, Alabama. Or, or on a mission trip like you see to Lisleta Youthern in El Paso, Texas. Okay? And yes, we see specific ways that people are sent out. Often we have a, a commissioning service of some sort to, to formally mark that occasion like we'll have in the second service. And yes, when they go... They engage in spiritual warfare, like we saw with the sending of the 72. The devil doesn't like it when, you, when we go out and proclaim the name of Jesus. And when people come back, they have a similar excitement about them. Like the 72 we read about in today in Luke chapter 10. In verse 14, we see the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And yes, God can use experiences like this to shape and to form the faith of his servants. He can work in their lives in meaningful and drastic ways. But, but if we relegate this text to just big trips like this, we do a disservice to the text. We do a, a disservice to the, to the very words of Jesus. You see, it's because Jesus sends us out all the time. He empowers and he equips us for this kind of task weekly. Just recently, and maybe you noticed this, 
uh, we change the sign as you leave the parking lot. It says the same thing. You are now entering the mission field, but it looks different, namely, in that it's not faded anymore. Because every week, all of us are sent out on mission for Jesus. And every week, we can come back with that same excitement that 72 had, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Because we too have been given the same power the 72 were given. We too have faith in Jesus' name, and we can use it accordingly by the Spirit to have power over the devil, the defeated foe of God. And we too can proclaim the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And there's one, more, there's one important detail here in Luke chapter 10 that I want you to pick up on. If you remember nothing else from the sermon, remember this. When you share the gospel, notice I said when, not if. When you share the gospel, if they hear you, they are actually hearing God. Let that sink in for a second. When you share the gospel, if they hear you, they are actually hearing God. That's what it says in verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. That's what Jesus says. When you speak, the person you are talking to is hearing God speak to them through you. Now, like with what happened to the 72, there will be some that reject what you've said. It's going to happen. And when it happened, when it happened with the 72, they were told to shake off the dust from their feet against them and, and, and to move on. But it's possible we might get caught up in that. We might say things or think things like, I should have said something different. Or, well, they weren't in the right mindset to hear what I had to say. Or, and this one's the worst, I wasn't convincing enough. If people entering the kingdom of God depends on how convincing you are, well then, I'm sorry, they don't have a snowball's chance. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 16. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. They aren't rejecting you. Well, they are, but they aren't rejecting only you. When they don't listen, they reject you, and they reject Jesus, and they reject God the Father. Now, the only way you can speak for God is through the Holy Spirit, and so by rejecting you, they're also rejecting the Holy Spirit. So it's rejection after rejection after rejection. And when we do that, often enough, when we face rejection over and over again, it can really take this, the wind out of your sails, especially in this present and evil age that we live in. Well, thankfully, we have the epistle, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia. He says in chapter 6, verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Notice, too, the word reap. It's an agricultural term used for bringing in the harvest. Just a side note here, I love that Jesus uses an agricultural analogy because that's what the church looks like. 
We see these little seeds being planted in our young ones and the recently converted. And we see these seeds are watered over time by a number of different individuals. And it's so fun and fulfilling to watch these little seeds start to sprout and to grow and to develop. And the thing is with plants is that they continue to grow up until they die. Even the elderly among us are plants that are continuing to grow in the faith. And this, of course, is in opposition to how many see the church today as a factory. There can be this mindset that, that if, we just, if we just dial everything in just right, if we have all the right programs and working in all just the right ways, then we'll start to churn out or produce these perfectly formed, completed Christians. That's the Henry Ford approach to discipleship. But the assembly line where somebody participates in program after program does not make a disciple. It's relationship, it's time, it's care, it's tending and investing that makes a disciple. That's why the agricultural way to reference discipleship is so accurate. And as Jesus' disciples, we get the honor and the privilege to go for Jesus into the harvest fields, like the 72. And we too have reason to celebrate and to be joyful. But what was the reason that Jesus gave the 72 as to, as to the why they should rejoice? Was it the treading on snakes and scorpions? Was it that the demons were subject to Jesus' name? Was it the power they felt or the acts they performed? No. No, it wasn't any of that. The reason they should rejoice is why? Well, look at verse 20. Because their names have been written in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Their names have been written into heaven now. What does that mean? Where is it written? What Jesus is referencing here is the book of life. And the book of life is not something we discuss often, but it is something referenced all over scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. King David says in Psalm uh, 139, verse 16, he's talking to God here, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Then we have Moses in Exodus 32, verse 31 and 32. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. John, the Apostle John says in Revelation 20, verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Even Paul says in Philippians 4, 3, And I urge you also, true companions, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. See, all these references point to that same book of life that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 10. But that leads to an even more important question. How do we know whose name is written in the book of life? Have any of you seen it? How do you know your name is in there? 
Some might say that their name is in there because of the life they've led. They would say they've done all these great things and therefore God owes them this eternal residence in heaven. Or maybe they think as long as they do more good things than bad things, the scales will tip in their favor and poof, their name will be added. That's not how scripture describes it. In fact, it appears that the, from scripture that the book of life was finished being written even before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Ponder that for just a minute. Even before you had the chance to sin or the chance to do good, your name was already written in the book of life. So how do you, name, how do you know your name's in there? Well, the simple answer is baptism. You see, baptism isn't some mystical act that if we do it, then God owes us heaven, Right? We aren't manipulating God to allow us into heaven because we had some guy in a white robe splash water on us one day. That's not how it works. But instead, baptism is a gift from God so that we know our names are written in the book of life. I asked my confirmation kids this question. Is baptism a requirement to get into heaven? And then I bring up the story of the thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus at the crucifixion. Tell them it's very, or it's highly unlikely that that thief on the cross was baptized. But what about him? Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in paradise. So it would appear that baptism isn't a requirement, right? So why do we do it? It's so that we sinners can have certainty. Because God knows that we are physical beings. He created us this way. That's why we have physical ways to interact with our God. We have water to feel being poured on our heads. We have ears to hear the dribbling of the water and the speaking of his word. We have eyes to see the reflection of light in that water. The same goes for communion. We have taste buds to experience the flavor of the bread and the wine. We have nostrils to smell it. We have nerve endings to feel it. And we have ears to hear his word. You see, we have these, these physical gifts to physically experience God's love and his forgiveness won by Jesus' death on the cross. And by receiving these gifts, we are reminded that our names are written in the book of life. The thief on the cross audibly heard Jesus deliver that good news to him. We today audibly receive the word of God spoken and we experience the physicality of water and bread and wine and body and blood that's how we know our names are in there. It's because we are baptized. But remember the order in which it happened. First, it was written down. Then we were baptized. The baptism is so that we have certainty our names are there. That's the reason Jesus gives his disciples as to why they should rejoice. And it's the same reason that you should rejoice. You are called by God. You are claimed by God. 
You are brought into his family. Your name is written in the book of life. And that's the reason we go forth, like the 72, into the harvest field. And as we go out, as sheep amongst the wolves, knowing that our good shepherd watches over us and he protects us, that our good shepherd provides for all of our needs, and that our good shepherd even willingly lays down his life for us. So go forth, little sheep, and proclaim Jesus, because you too have been given the authority to subject even the demons. In Jesus' name, amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.